Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Time to Talk. My name's Alex Holmes, and I'm your host. Um, just a quick note. For the next two weeks, I'm going to be away. So I'm not going to really have a chance to do the introspective uh, conversations. I'm taking a break. So the next few episodes are going to be conversations, going to be the full conversations um, that I've had with friends. Um, and I'll be back in November with some solo episodes. And in these solo episodes, we're going to be looking a bit more in depth at men's mental health as it's November and that's Movember. And we'll be taking that up until the beginning of December, uh, where I'll be taking the seasonal break. And then after December, we'll be back in January. So I'm going to be away for two weeks. But in those two weeks, there are going to be two um, conversations that are going to be shared on this channel. Um, so, yeah, I just want to say thank you for kind of joining me with this new resurgence of the podcast I really appreciate you all and um, I'm hoping that you have blessed uh, end of months uh, the clocks in the UK they go back uh, we enter into the period of darkness <laughs> but not so much in a solemn way I think that there is something really special about this period of time this period of his history this period of the year um the the rolling into winter from autumn and you know the end of the end of the year Halloween um, and what that looks like going into various celebrations I know that the people celebrate people who listen celebrate Thanksgiving and then we head to Christmas and that is a very special time for me since it's my birthday month and whatnot so um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for joining me this far. Um, and I hope that these conversations take you into the next few weeks. Um, yeah. So the next, this conversation is with a friend of mine called Mark McCartney. And he wrote a newsletter called What is a Good Life? And we have a discussion about what that is, about what his experience with that is, whether we managed to answer that question and what we can experience um, in our day-to-day -to, -day to kind of put us on the path to a good life. Um, so yeah, looking forward to hearing you listen to Mark and sharing what you think, your thoughts, your experiences. Um, yeah, so... Again, as I said, I'm playing around with structure and things that I want to share and how I want to share it on this show. Um, so when I come back, I'm going to have very specific content for you, as I mentioned. And um, I'm looking forward to, to sharing that part with you. But for now, let's have a listen to the conversation with Mark McCartney. And I look forward to catching up with you in a few weeks. Talk soon. to have you here I'm a huge fan of your newsletter um, and we're going to get into that in a moment but before we do um, tell the people about who you are 
what are your beginnings? How did you get here? Uh, yes, yeah, so as you can probably tell by the accent, I'm, I'm from Ireland, uh, but I haven't lived in Ireland for 10 years. Um, I spent the first 25 years of my life in Ireland, then moved to Vancouver for about four years or so, uh, spent some time in London, uh, met my wife, uh, my German wife in northern India, uh, spent some time in Vancouver again, back to Peru, um, and now in Berlin. And professionally in that time, I had a career in capital markets, so financial roles for about 15 years. Um, but then I'd say maybe six to seven years ago, um, my life kind of forked from the point of view of what I was doing professionally and what my interests were. So that was getting far more into things like meditation, philosophy, uh, journaling, uh, getting quite introspective, I think, uh, which then led me to do a coaching designation a couple of years ago. Uh, but as you alluded to there in the newsletter, I'm, I'm here really just to try to make some sort of discovery around human thoughts or behavior, something unique. And, you know, my method for doing it at the moment has been interviewing people, chunks of people around certain questions that I find fascinating. So the, the newsletter, What is a Good Life, is, is um, that was based on 110 interviews I did with individuals for 45 minutes each. Um, and with this, my life at the moment is very much just following what I'm interested in. Um, it's led me to make some really strange decisions, like I, I quit a job on the first day with a 40% pay increase and to do absolutely nothing that I didn't know at the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just trying to live a life a little bit more heart-led or intuition-led than just cold logic. You want a more intentional life. And I think that, that's really interesting because what you what you've mentioned in this in in your introduction here is actually so um so amazing you've got the travel and you've come and you've literally left home and you've just gone and just searched around for all of the things why what was it like traveling um what were you looking for so the first time I went traveling for four months I'm 38 now and I was 31 at the time and I went to India for four months and um, to be perfectly honest, Alex, at that point, I just wanted the space um, to discover more about myself and potentially to fall apart even more. Um, that year before I went to India, um, that was a really volatile year, I would say. Like I, I saw a psychologist for the first time. I started opening up to insecurities for the first time and really realizing at the age of 31, uh, despite projections of uh, confidence, borderline arrogance. Um, you know, I was very unsure of myself. Uh, so the initial plan to go to India, I did some 10-day Vipassana silent meditation retreats and meditation became very important to me. And But it was just really that sense that I, I didn't want to have to go into a business meeting and someone asking me, how are you doing? And it's a client and for me to go, well, you know, I'm feeling a bit sad today. <laughs> you know, like it's usually you have to be a little bit upbeat and say, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm wonderful. How are you? And yeah. I just didn't want to, I wanted space from playing any sort of game whatsoever. Yeah. Tell me more about the Vipassana meditation retreats. What was that like? So the first time I did it uh, was in India. And at that stage, I'd... I'd left London and I'd gone back home over the Christmas period. So as in, while I'd in London, I'd given up alcohol for six months. I'd given up dating for six months. I'd gone through a whole series of experiments trying to pick myself apart. Um, wow. I went back to I went back to Ireland that Christmas and indulged in every distraction possible. Um, so by the time I got to India, uh, I wasn't I hadn't lived such a virtuous life I'd say in Dublin over Christmas. And then I arrived in this Vipassana Center. Um, after being kind of ripped off when I got to Delhi, I kind of arrived in Delhi with no plan. And I just thought I was going to trust the universe. Um, may sound a bit cliched or naive, but that's, that was my, my idea. Yeah. And so then I think the, the first few days of the Vipassana, to be honest, I was just thinking about vengeance on this chap who had, uh, who had <laughs> overcharged me. So it wasn't, it wasn't too, uh, too present, um, an experience, but. You know, after the second night, um, I was, you know, 
the place that I was in was really basic. Like it, I showed up and I said, um, am I the first Irish guy you've ever seen here? And they said, I think you're the first white guy we've ever seen here. Wow. Uh, so it was it was like well out outside of the main cities, if you know what I mean. And so I was rooming with this guy and I guess he must have been about 65 or so. And um, this Indian guy. And even on the second night, he heard noises coming from my bed that he must have just thought that I was freezing because you're not allowed to communicate with anyone. But he came over to put an extra blanket on me. But I was just almost having a panic attack, to be honest. Like I was just left with my own thoughts for even at that stage, 48 hours. And it was really, you know, I, I was really having earnest thoughts about the idea of jumping the fence. They have all your possessions, your identification and all that. I was thinking about leaving all that stuff behind and roaming the fields outside of the city of Look Now in just like a, you know, a, a sheep draped over me. Um, yeah. You know, and there's that crazy white guy in the in the countryside. You know, this, this was a thought that I gave to. But after that, it calmed down. And then, like, I, I, I broke through some some of just the madness of the mind. Like, my mind stilled a lot more after that, those initial first two days. Um, but... Mm-hmm. I'd say it's it's a very intense experience because even when I've done it subsequently, like the not the monotony, but the isolation of no eye contact or no physical contact, um, that that takes its toll as well. Where you just kind of feel like you're you can be lacking that as well, even though you're probably sinking into something a little bit deeper within your own experience. Yeah, if you want to explain a bit about what vipassana is, yeah, so. Essentially, the first couple of days when you start it initially, you may just be focusing on the inhale and exhale directly from your nostrils. Like you're not supposed to be focusing on any other part of the body. And as you evolve, though, uh, you start doing body scans. So you're literally scanning down your body and, and feeling the sensations in each part of your body. And you're going up and down and you're doing that repetitively. But it, the context uh, for which it's set is, you know, there's no speaking, no eye contact, no reading or writing materials. Um, you're up at 4.30 in the morning. You go to bed at around 9.30 at night. You've got about three hours, I believe, or maybe four hours in between 4.30 and 9.30 to just wander around the gardens or the premise yourself. Uh, but other than that, you've got scheduled times for meditation. So it's it's a pretty a pretty intense affair where you know you're really just left with yourself and nothing kind of teaches me more about the base case madness of my mind than you know if i'm if i'm there on day 6 and i haven't had an in- interaction with anyone else but i'm bringing up old arguments in my head or past regrets are coming up uh, that are haunting me and you have nowhere to go like, you know, there's no phone to switch on and scan through whatever whatever thing you may do to, dis- to distract yourself. There's no uh, nothing you can eat in between ses- eating times. And, you know, you've got no even form of exercise to do or anything like that. Like all of that's not not allowed. So you're literally just left with yourself. And it's a it's a simultaneously really intense experience, but also liberating experience as well, because once you kind of get through it or even just get through the points where you're struggling, like there, there are many moments in it, which are pretty, which can be pretty euphoric as well. Now, once you know that you can do without any distraction for 10 days, like that's a very liberating thing to have in your back pocket as you go back into life. We can really reach for different things to distract ourselves from our own feelings, our own experience, our own discomforts. So from that perspective, it's, it's a, it's quite a liberating experience. Yeah. That, process of being alone with your thoughts for a long period of time i've looked at these retreats and they vary from five to seven to ten days working um of their sort of the the program is around that long and I'm an extroverted thinker, so I like to talk through my ideas with people or the things that happen to help me make sense of what I need to make sense of. 
because I will have moments where I am working through thoughts with people as I'm discussing the thoughts and coming to my own conclusion of what those thoughts are, obviously interested in what people contribute to them. And I think what frightens me or makes me anxious about that is that I will not be able to write it down or speak about it. So it stays with me. Yeah in some particular way how did you deal with that and how did you reintegrate into the world after that and how long were yeah, you doing I, it for sorry uh, ten, yeah 10 days um you know so i'd be quite similar to you like i in that sense like i have a notepad usually with me um either for the sake of journaling or jotting things down and i really enjoy close relationships with people because it gives me a chance to play out these kind of thoughts instead of it just reverberating around in my brain and you know increasing the intensity of that thought if i'm not letting go of it so i definitely find that a challenge um and even when you have moments where you think you've made some sort of breakthrough or epiphany or something like this and you're like i i hope i don't forget this you know there's a there's a real need, there's almost a real attachment to think i really want to write this down mm. uh, but to be honest it's just it's just something that you get used to because the confines are, are the you know the boundaries are in place so it's it's more of a case i think of just adapting to what is and accepting that uh, than is like my process is still to externalize and verbalize my thoughts with people because like yourself, I like to bounce them off people. Just just one, to get them out of just my own internal patterns, but also just for different perspectives on things. So it's not like it would have changed me, changed my approach in the long term, but in the short term, yeah, there's a real desire for that. But when you realize there's just nothing you can do about it, you can either prolong your suffering by staying attached to that or you can just try to let go of it and move on yeah so reintegrating back into the world though yeah like that's uh that's kind of that, that for me is a little kind of anticlimactic i would say because you kind of think of this moment i don't know if you've seen v for vendetta but the scene where uh, natalie portman she's been um kept in the basement for a while and then v takes her up uh to the the top or the penthouse part of the, uh, the apartment and she's outside in the rain and the rain's touching her for the first time and it's it's this euphoric moment you're kind of very quickly once your phone's put back in your hand you plug it in you see a few people that i don't know text you or didn't text you you check the news probably realized you missed nothing um and then life kind of goes on <laughs> like you know the world didn't stop turning because you decided to unplug for 10 days and it's you know like while it definitely leaves a different perspective and it's really helpful to have those thoughts i'm i'm a big believer that it's not you know it's not just these moments that you have the big breakthrough or something like that it's how you integrate it into your life thereafter like you know if i meditate for 30 minutes to 60 minutes a day that's still only a very small percentage of my waking life you, you know so it's even with experiences I've had with psychedelics or something like these are big, they can seem like big moments, but the real challenge is the day-to-day -day stuff. Like it's the reintegration of it and how you're showing up to your life in general, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to some big epiphany that that's very intense, but then maybe not leads to a, a prolonged change. Mm. Out of curiosity, what experience have you had of psychedelics? Uh, yeah. So I've, I, so I took part in a couple of ayahuasca ceremonies um, in a kind of a group setting. And then I've also um, I've tried San Pedro once, once again, under the, the tutelage, I would say, of a psychotherapist. Or they weren't not in their official capacity, but they were running some sessions with it. Uh, then I, I've tried um, psilocybin mushrooms in large doses three times in a confined dark space with no music or distractions or just just myself i'm interested in psilocybin i don't know mm. what san pedro is uh, it's like this uh, cactus thing um so i think it could maybe maybe that like an equivalent could be like peyote or something like this but it's uh it's a lot more gentle than than ayahuasca or psilocybin okay what's it what was psilocybin like 
yeah, really bizarre. I've t- so uh, once a year, I've I've said to myself, I'm going to do some, one experience, um, and I have done that for the last six years. And look, I don't recommend this to anybody. You know, this is just my approach. Uh, so, like, I, I tried to consult people that I thought knew what they were talking about before these kind of things. But this is a very personal thing. Like, I. Mm-hmm. When I hear people suggesting ayahuasca to somebody else, I, I think you're nuts if you don't know somebody's background. Um, so when I did ayahuasca the first time, I'd been, I'd seen a clinical psychologist for maybe six to seven months that year. And I even asked her at the time, like, by the way, this opportunity has come up. What do you like? What do you think? And there was no no major pushback or hesitation on on her behalf. One thing I'd say with all of these things is you'd really want to get a good handle on yourself and know that there's not something lying waiting for you in your subconscious that you haven't tried to look we're all works in progress right but that you haven't at least tried to engage with and struggle with before you try something else that you know that's the only thing i'd say to people from based on my experience because i feel i was somewhat ready to engage with ayahuasca the first time but if i had done that without let's say the meditation before the the therapy or whatever I think that would have been a real jolt or shock to the system, you know, because it, it just takes you into a, I don't understand trite or something, but almost different dimensions of existence or a different, uh, yeah, you're just operating on a different plane of existence or consciousness or, or something like, you know, I can't, I can't define it, but it, it's, it's a, it's an intense experience. With psilocybin though, specifically, that was, um, the first time I did it, it was a curiosity to one, scare the crap out of myself, um, and then two, to uh, I'd, I'd research different things or different doses um, and ask different people's opinions on something. And I wanted to abl- have an experience of obliterating myself in a way um, and like just my ego construct and to have a, an elongated experience where I wasn't the center of the story. It didn't relate back to I. And so there was very intense experiences of um, of like some sort of ego death, I'd say, involved, and then just kind of supernatural experiences in, in the sense of just different dimensions or different, you know, just very strange things to try to, to come back and talk to somebody about. Like just... Yeah. Um, you know, like even weird things like thinking I knew everything, but not in an egoic sense, but just that I felt that connected to the fabric of what is that I was a part of it. Therefore, I knew it. So it, it definitely made me gave me things to consider in terms of just how connected everything could be or, or how connected I could be with everyone else or, or everything else. So interesting experience. general existential exploration for our own understanding of purpose and what that looks like for us um i'm not a huge fan of trends but i have seen a lot of communication around these specific kind of plants lately um i guess it would take more research from me but you know it's interesting to hear what you said about your experiences with it yes so look i I would be very skeptical as to lots of the trends and what people are saying like having like been around some groups of people that have done these things like with psilocybin for example i've done that in isolation um just with somebody around in case something went on if if something unpredictable went on uh, but I would say I'm very skeptical as to the trends. Uh, I see a lot of people that almost want to abdicate themselves as the responsibility for going to places in themselves or doing some um, self, self-work self or whatever it may be and thinking that some of these plants can be, uh, they're almost like a panacea for all your problems. Um, and I really don't subscribe to that thought. Like, 
for me, they give me glimpses potentially into, or they give me different glimpses or perspectives on what reality could be. And that's something I'm I'm fascinated in and just my day-to-day stuff. Like I, I read lots into into quantum physics and quantum um, or quantum mechanics, whatever you want to call it. And there's just I'm very fascinated with the idea that as a as a creature, I probably have very limited capacities to perceive an objective reality. Um and so these are maybe just part of it once a year these are kind of part of a, a process in which to see if i can glean anything else from a, a one-off experience but as a as a continued thing or a, a process I, I you know i wouldn't be able to comment on that i know john hopkins are doing research on mdma and i think psilocybin too in terms of mdma in terms of ptsd and and um and other other things like that so I do think there's a value to them, but I also think I'd be very careful if someone was coming to it and just asking someone who's very much in a scene as to just to how much they maybe glorify the effects of, of plant medicine. And yeah, it's not a panacea for, for all of your problems, right? I think a lot of these things are and should be done in um, collaboration with this kind of support yeah. to help you find um, the answers. Because I think that's kind of what the, the purpose of, and it's actually so great that this is the segue that we've entered into. This is the purpose of what it means to have a good life in in, in one in in one strand, I suppose, um, one idea. But um, so you've got the project what is a good life and you spent time interviewing people around these big questions around what is a what is a good life um what made you start this project when did you start it and what made you sit down and think i want to collate all of these stories from people and get these ideas about this big question and put it into a newsletter form what what made you start that to want to ask those questions really it was these are the kind of questions that i that i've just become a little bit just perpetually fascinated with and just questions that are really simple but really kind of complex at times to answer and when I, like, so what I told you at the, the top of the interview, when I, when I was offered this job three years ago with the 40% pay increase and I left on the first day, it was really just because the money side of things didn't seem so important to me anymore. And I thought there was a whole part of life that was unexamined um, that I found much more fascinating to, to go to lean into. And um, so with this, when I'd spent like a year in Peru that year, just really sitting with things like this and going through my own daily processes, I was just fascinated to try to bring some of this stuff back to, let's say, even um, an audience maybe that wouldn't have typically um, had this kind of line of inquiry. And so initially, I just wanted to ask people about what what is a good life for them. And, you know, I mentioned to you already that I'd love to make some discovery. That's for whatever reason. I I just have this thing in my head that this is what I'm what I'm supposed to do, and um, and it wasn't to figure out. This is like just a. This will be the first step in my process of interviewing lots of people potentially around making sense of different people's thoughts. But it wasn't to prescribe the answer to what a good life is. What was annoying me with a lot of the self development content I see. Um, and even just, you know, you touched on it there with, let's say, Vipassana or even if it was psychedelics, I see people get very entrenched in whatever it is their method is and prescribing that to other people. Um, my idea with this was not to find a standardized approach to finding out what a good life is. It was just to show that people have many, many different perspectives on this. And really, the right answer is your own answer if you give yourself time to reflect and if you're willing to to spend time navigating whatever thoughts come up for you. So I started off without any plan whatsoever. Um, 
I just interviewed five people on this without having a clue what it would become. And then I got really hooked on the idea um, where I I then posted it on LinkedIn, uh, got lots of uh, inquiries back to say that they'd love to do an interview. And then before I knew it, I was kind of 50 interviews deep in the space of a few weeks. And I just kind of kept going with it. And it wasn't until really I'd completed the 110 interviews that I had a, an idea then that I'd do a newsletter because I'm not on any kind of real social media apart from LinkedIn. Um, posting stuff online is not really, you know, something that I'm I'm accustomed to. So even the idea of making a newsletter or doing anything like this was completely foreign to me. Uh, but things just kind of fell into place. And then thankfully people said nice things about it or, you know, enjoyed being part of the process. And yeah, then, then you know, now it's potentially turning into a, a, an idea for a corporate wellness program. Uh, a couple of companies approached me about potentially building this into something where it could, I could repeat the same process in, in, in corporations. Um, so bit by bit, just by kind of doing what I enjoyed or what fascinated me and following that curiosity, um, this kind of came to be. It's a beautiful newsletter. What have you learned from these, from doing these letters? Yeah, so I I would say that it it definitely reinforced my opinion that it's it's a personal answer for for different people to come to. You know, if there's so much content that I think is out there that looks to to focus maybe on what the average of a study is. But if if my shoe size is 12 and somebody else is six and we both wear a nine, you know, that doesn't answer the question for us, if you know what I mean. Um, it's definitely, because there's lots that I obviously don't include in these interviews, but it's, it's definitely also helped me see that despite what someone's um, career and job title may be, because I found a lot of these people on LinkedIn when I posted it. So lots of people had like, you know, very kind of senior careers and this kind of stuff. There's a big gap, I think, be, be between the perception we have of somebody else's experience of life and and what their reality is. Um, I find that very interesting. I find it very interesting that we all experience this challenge. We all experience challenge in life. Um, and also just when I was asking people around the idea of like seminal moments of fulfillment in life, that it really broke down to the simple stuff, like or things that we define as simple, like, you know, going, going for a walk in the park with my kids or gathering around at a social function with friends or, you know, going for a bike ride on a sunny day or being in nature. Like considering I talked to a lot of people that had various different um you know, things to share from their highlight reel of, of life, whatever you want to call it, people generally resort it back to just just really simple, accessible things that are there all the time. Um, but we have a, I don't know, we have this mechanism within ourselves that we just seem to strive for things and ignore the things that we have and, and kind of in a way create our own suffering in, in ways. So that was really interesting to me. Um. Also, the sense of, look, the, the two most frequently given answers were relationships by, by basically everyone mentioned some form of relationship, um, which, you know, will be coming up in, in future editions, uh, but then also health. And given that the majority of people did have um, even physical health, I could say, and, you know, good relationships in their life, I don't know, it became very clear to me that like we kind of have the key ingredients for a good life, but it's almost in pursuing the cherry on top or the striving for that, that we can kind of ignore that we've already got, you know, if they were taken away from us, like health or good relationships, man, you, you do very well to feel like you're having a good life without those things. But we, we can kind of gloss over these things and take things for granted a lot. Um, and I guess the final thing I'd say is, I think everyone has their own bit of internal wisdom. Like, you know, I, I specifically didn't want to interview a ton of ex, like everyone being an expert in a certain field of, 
of, you know, philosophy or psychology or whatever. Like, you know, there's obviously psychologists that I interviewed or different people, but they weren't branding themselves or positioning themselves as experts. And the experience that lots of people shared was that, you know, when I sent back the excerpt to them, they were like, did I say that? You know, there was almost like a surprise moment. Now, granted, a lot of editing goes into it, but I do make sure that the words that I that the interviewer use are the words that I use. I may just like if they said something interesting at minute 20 that connected with something they said at minute 38, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll move things around. But they are there. They are the individual's words. And I think there was something there was always a kind of an aha moment in each interviewer as like, ah, that's that's I like how they put that together or that that, that made me think or stop in my own tracks. I think that what would be good for us to do here is for me to throw back some of these questions that you have been asking yeah. people. So the first question I have to you is, what does the word freedom mean to you? Hmm. The first word that comes to mind when I hear of freedom is uh, choice. And that I can decide what I want to do with my day and there's a degree of autonomy in deciding then how I'll you know potentially earn my living as well that it won't be something that's kind of um, enforced upon me and it's really a I'd even just say a freedom to be myself like I, I, I a lot of these things I find like to cultivate freedom in my life it involves a lot of uh, intentionality you know like really in in my case I had to kind of deconstruct a past life in my mid-30s without knowing what I was going to do and then wait for the almost to have the patience then to wait to see what would appear in its in its in its place and so freedom in that sense was definitely the freedom to to go away from my immediate environment as well, uh, because I think if I was living in Dublin or London or something like that, I would have really struggled to have stayed in those places while dropping things and, you know, going about my normal day to day. And people are saying, so you're doing what now? And trying to explain that all the time. Uh, so I think it was also the freedom to go to a different and um, go to just a different culture, a different way of life and to just yeah, to have the space, space would be a big part of freedom as well. Just have the space to, like I mentioned in India, to fall apart or the space in Peru not to rush myself into committing to something just because that would have been the expected thing to do. What was it like entering your 30s? 30 for me, I, I had this weird thing and um, 37 and 27 seemed like big ages for me for some reason. And then I, I have no idea why. And then 30 didn't seem much of a thing to me at the time. But when I turned 27, I thought, oh, damn, I'm not in my mid-20s really anymore. Like, you know, that that was kind of the moment that I, I passed away or passed that by. And then even when I turned 37, I felt far more reflective of like, oh, man, I'm not even mid-30s anymore. Um, but yeah, mid, entering my 30s then, like my first year of my 30s, or sorry, my second year, when I after I turned, turned 31, it was a... There was a kind of an exponential learning curve in figuring out who the hell or what I who the hell I was or what I was or what I wanted from life. Um, so I would say an extremely volatile time initially um, in trying to understand who I was, trying to deal with potential like old traumas from my from my childhood or something, which I I just did not want to acknowledge or face um, growing up, which then led to. I know, which then just led to lots of unhelpful or unhealthy behaviors and relationships and stuff like that. So turning in my early 30s, that was a big, a big shock to kind of go from the arrogance of my 20s, um, where I really pretended I knew a lot or felt that I maybe even potentially felt that I knew a lot to suddenly taking on a new uh, or adopting a new mindset, which is, hmm, I there's a lot that I don't know about myself and having a kind of an insatiable curiosity or thirst for trying to figure out more. Okay. And I, I always ask the, the, um, the age question out of self-interest just because I'm turning 30. I, I, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 
I totally understood what you meant when you said you reach 27 and you're and it's just like you're on this interesting slide <laughs> to just a completely different decade now you can't say you're in your early 20s you can't say you're in your mid 20s you're in your late 20s and, th- and those late 20s are pretty much defined by the ages 27 to 20, 27 to 30 um and it's hugely reflective because it's the first decade that you're a full adult really and you actually sit there like for the and you know you enter into that decade as a full adult and I did want to ask then are you satisfied with the level of freedom that you've experienced I am you know I'd almost think like freedom from myself as well to be honest or freedom from freedom from the the parts of myself that I had or the life that I built up for myself, which was really um, inhibiting me from being myself. Um, and I like I, I don't know if that necessarily comes with age or that comes with a deliberate attempt to shed some of that. Uh, but there was definitely, yeah, like I've, while I still don't, I'm 38 now, whereas I, I don't know exactly where my how my life is is going or where it's going like there's there's enough paths in front of me now that I can kind of go ah now I'm back on a path where I I kind of have some comfort again uh but there was a definitely a, a few years where I was like have I made a absolutely stupid decision or have I done the best thing that I possibly could have done for myself and I don't know I I have this real belief that there's that there's some if if we just if if we're just willing enough or brave enough to walk our own path that incredible things can happen it's not like a birthright or it's not a guarantee like you know things can still not turn out all right and you've lived your true self or you've lived your you know your you know you've lived by by whatever you've felt but i i do think that what i can definitely say about the last 6 years is that i've lived my own life and I most certainly wasn't willing to do that. I would have been too self-conscious to do that in my 20s and potentially too afraid to, too afraid to even go to certain places within, within myself in my 20s. I wonder why that is. Yeah, I, I think it's... Um, I've always wondered, like, in the last seven years or so, like, you know, when someone starts meditating or something like that, anything good that comes into their life, they typically start attributing it to meditation. Uh, it's a generalization, obviously, but it's just something I kind of noticed. Like, well, now I'm meditating. This has come into my life. But I also just wonder what of, which of those things that I would have maybe even given credit to meditation to, what would have just naturally have happened just by the passing of time? Like, I, I really don't drink very often. Um and it's been a, a good while since I've even been drunk, I'd say. But, you know, hangovers were also a nightmare in my early 30s. Like, how much longer would I have kept it going? You, you know, um, and I just wonder, yeah, I just wonder how much of this is is how, you know, I can shape it by saying, well, I, I do these reflective things and therefore my life's changing. I do believe these all these things do have a, have a good impact on someone's life. But it would be interesting, like, just to see what would happen, as you kind of say, as you as you pass through time, what would naturally naturally just evolve. Yeah. I think I had a similar experience with alcohol. I went through a moment where I just stopped drinking this year. Yeah. Um, for a long time. And I've only really started kind of drinking back again. But it's not to the quantity that I used to and it's not not it's not and it's very much about me maintaining control of that choice of when to drink yeah. when I don't want to drink you know and I think that that's very interesting and I remember earlier at the beginning of your of our conversation you said everything that is in your life you've invited into it yeah and I think that that was a a beautiful way of just articulating that you're able to take on the sort of experiences that are coming to you 
Do you know, I I went back to Ireland recently and I was just having a conversation with my brother and we were driving somewhere and I, I said, it's this kind of funny thing, like you, if you decide to grow in life, you're going to suffer, right? Because you, it's like not like not pointless suffering or something, but you're going to have to put yourself in new experiences. You're going to have to do things that maybe potentially frighten you. And then, but at the same time, if you decide probably not to grow in life, and you just decide you really want to stay in your comfort zone, that will bring its own suffering. Like just in the maybe the vitality that you experience, or the enthusiasm you have, or the curiosity you have for life. So, I don't, you know, like I don't think that it's like you, you'll get to avoid suffering or discomfort in life. But I think there's far more enjoyment in life when you know that you've asked for these situations to materialize and you know especially for me shifting careers in my mid-30s um, and just even right now at 38 not particularly feeling like an expert in anything that I'm putting I'm trying multiple different projects at the moment but not feeling like I'm an experienced expert in what I'm doing like that's a really enlivening and vulnerable uh, experience you know so it's it's both like I think both like lots of experiences we have in life have almost this like bittersweetness to it and when i when i feel like i've really decided that these were the things that i want to do that's where you can kind of really get outside of that experience and not just go oh this is uncomfortable therefore i'm gonna maybe binge eat or binge watch something or you know go on whatever uh, device you may have or whatever anyone's distraction may be then it's like ah this is the point that i've got to now and it's because good things are happening that I'm experiencing this discomfort. And, um, you know, like if I'm going to be delivering corporate wellness programs in front of corporations or something, I've, I don't have experience in that, but it's something that it's um, something that it like speaks to me or excites me for what I, a potential effect I could have on the corporate world or, or something to this effect. Um, you know, even putting out a newsletter on a weekly basis. Like I, I know obviously you're far you've far more experience in terms of putting work out there into the for public consumption but putting that out for the first nine or ten weeks like that was a every single time before I press publish that was a, a vulnerable experience and I'm getting more comfortable in that now but I needed to go through that experience of discomfort to for, before it felt anyways comfortable I think I've always looked at it because I've never looked at it as like putting something out there for public consumption, although that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always looked at it as making a contribution yeah. to a conversation. And that is absolutely what you do. You're making a contribution to a conversation. And I think that once I began to shift my thinking around that, whenever you do something new and you feel like you're going to do something new, it's literally that you're doing something new because you're making a contribution in a way that you may not see nor understand. Initially, you make a contribution to yourself when you try something new for yourself. You make you, you make a contribution to a community or quote unquote the world when you put something out there on a regular basis. And I think that that's an important way that I don't think a lot of us are looking at it as it's consume my content consume my stuff like share re retweet repost all this yeah, yeah yeah and all yeah. of that stuff is amazing like you i mean to to get that to get that stuff out there but i think that we would benefit from a reframing and that reframing is about is about the contribution you know and people are going to share yeah, what I... they feel is given is adding value right yeah, and look, I, I fully agree with that. I, the the idea of public consumption that I was more putting across was like somebody else is going to get to see what I'm putting out. Mm. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, mm. And that for me, um, that was really challenging at the start or even, even, um, yeah, even posting things on LinkedIn because I had no, no experience with it, if you know what I mean. Like I, I had no... I'd no social media experience with any of this stuff before. So it just felt like a very new thing to me, even publicizing my views, I'd say. Yeah. As, a, as the final few questions for 
this conversation. Um, I like to ask, and the last question I always ask is, what does it mean to be human, in your opinion? Uh, to be human for me is to experience as much of life as possible. Um, it's to experience highs and lows, you know, to, it's to be wildly curious. It's also to be wildly neurotic at times. It's, it's to love, it's to laugh, it's to fight, it's to, to, to cry. It's, um, and it's utterly absurd. Like, do you know, like, whatever origin story you come back to, like, based on the confines which we live within, in what we say is reality, you know, if you were to say the Big Bang or God or go with Elon Musk and go a simulation or something like that, there's something, like, wonderfully absurd just about how the hell we're here or what the hell we're doing here. And I think, while I may never get an intellectual answer to that question, uh, I think just the exploration of it is is a hell of a ride. For sure. For sure. Thank you so much for joining me, Mark, today. Um, Thank you very much for having me, Alex. Do you have two books that you can recommend to listeners? Yeah. Um, the first book, I would say, is The Order of Time by Carlo Rivelli. Um, he's an Italian physicist, but he writes with a real um, poetic flair and has a real interest in philosophy. So it's it's written for, for lay people like myself that have a, a curiosity for quantum physics. Um, but it also just deconstructs the idea that time is this linear thing where there's a past, present and future. And so for me, it blows my mind to just know once again that I'm a really blunt instrument and potentially... Uh, acknowledging what an objective reality is. And that just opens up many other lines of thought or curiosities. Uh, so that's really interesting for me. Um, then I, another book I, I really enjoyed would be, yeah, The Autobiography of a Yogi, um, which is, it's a long one and it's pretty out there. Like it's, um, it's by this guy, uh, Pramanahasha Yogananda, and apparently it was the only book on Steve Jobs' uh, whatever the Apple equivalent is of a, of a Kindle, and he gave it to everyone at his, his funeral. Um, but it's really, just once again, it's just a bit like kind of um, deconstructed my own worldview and just led me, let me be, made me a little bit more open to some of the someone else's experience of life or reality. Um, and it, it challenged me a lot um, in just even trying to go where the author had gone and his understanding of life and the cosmos and everything in between.